0: Welcome to the second season of the Dog Industry Podcast. Like in 2020, the podcast was realized in collaboration with the What's Up With Dogs podcast and the programmers of Color Collective. Join us for discussions on topics such as the limited representation of brown LGBTQ plus stories in the cinematic space, the lack of inclusivity in the mainstream press and the possibilities of Caribbean avant-garde cinema. The Doc Industry podcasts are funded by Creative Europe, the City of Leipzig, MDM, and BKM. Thank you to our partners and collaborators for their contribution. Enjoy.
1: So, Jihan, thank you so much for being on the show today.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me, Tony.
1: Um, and just on a personal note, Renelle and I are so happy to be doing this uh, second year collaboration with Doc Leipzig. Um, Thank you, um, behind the scenes, Anne and Nadia, for making this happen. So,
0: <laughs> and thank you, Renell and Anne, on my behalf too.
1: All right, so Jihan, I just like you to just—you've had uh, an amazing documentary career, um, also um, an amazing work around your advocacy and documentary. But I just want you to just—if you could give us a little. Um, preview of like what you do with DocBox um, for our US-based audiences who may not be familiar with that organization.
0: Yeah. Well, DocBox is an institution that supports, um, trains, and funds um, Arab and African filmmakers, and um we uh it started initially in 2014 actually came out of a film festival in Syria and it was mainly angled around arab filmmakers and uh when i was hired i think uh, early 2019 um i obviously uh, being Egyptian and having uh, Arab slash Africa became um, the main theme, really, because I do believe that this, um, this division within the continent that is completely artificial mm-hmm. um, is something that we should not perpetuate. So I guess that all the programs that came out of there um, kind of... Uh, underline this. So we have seven programs that are running. Um, I'm not going to get into the details of all mm-hmm. of them. Uh, but um, they're found on our website on docsbox.org. <laughs> That's easy. Um, yes. uh, uh, but basically, what we are trying to do is fill in the gaps that most other Um, labs and institutions do not look after. And these are mainly uh, gaps that uh, filmmakers that are not assisted by major producers, major funding, find themselves totally at a loss. Uh, And so for example, we have something like uh, called Doc's Garage, which is a garage. What is your problem? identify it and we will find the right mentor to accompany Mm. you to try and fix it. We have something called the residency, which basically offers um, filmmakers up to 15 weeks of editing and post-production, even if they don't have a producer, even if they don't have any money, but it's the ability to finish a film. And I think that comes very much out of um, On the Continent, there are a few top filmmakers who managed to break into the system and all the others are left stranded. So how can we accompany these voices that we feel are important voices that give the perspective of the South? How can we accompany uh, accompany them to the finish line? Now, after that, whether they break through or not isn't really what we're concerned about. And then then we have a program called Women in Docs, which is six women from six countries doing a collective film from Mm. idea to delivery. And we just today, this morning, sound mixed and graded the two films they did together, and it is a real delight. Last but certainly not least... Mm -hmm is our our archive-based program, which is called People's Stories, Past and Present. And I'll actually tell you the subtitle, which I think is really important. It's called Bridging the Silenced and Liminal Spaces of African Imagery. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And that's an archive program that's going to run for two years. We chose two hubs, one being Morocco and the other being Senegal. Uh, And this choice is again based to reconnect Mm -hmm. the countries of North and South that have had histories together since the 15th century.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So we're going to definitely dive Deep into the archival piece because that sounds amazing. Um, but I want to go back to a, a few things you said. So um, you mentioned the the false division between like North Af you know North Africa and like I guess and the rest of the continent because um, I know that uh, the only North African country, actually the only African country I've been to is Morocco. I went, when I was in college, I was there for five months. It was amazing. Um, um, but there is this division. So there's Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, which is, uh, you know, etc., which is considered like North Africa. And then there's the, and with North Africa, which is like the Arab speaking countries, so to speak. Um, and then there's the rest of the continent. So can you speak, to more just about like, um, how that division happened, but also how it's continued to be perpetuated, particularly like in grant spaces, um, particularly in the in the global North, because they're, they're programs that are specifically for like Middle Eastern and North African filmmakers, and then then the program is specifically for that folks for the rest of the continent.
0: Yeah, I actually got obsessed with with this question for a while and ended up writing um, uh, an article, I think it was for Art Africa, called The Great Divide. And I, I got obsessed with this word, sub-Saharan Africa.
2: Mm. And I
0: couldn't really figure out um, where that came from. I mean, is it a colonial term, but you can't really find it in colonial literature, What is it? And you can't find that divide on the map. And I couldn't figure out why is Mauritania, Sub-Saharan Africa, and it's in the north, yet Sudan is considered an Arab MENA country, yet it's way down below the Sahara. So what is all this about? And so basically, um, I did a lot of research, and this is a very long story, so I'll try to be a bit Mm -hmm. concise about it. And basically, it comes from the mid-50s, 1956 to be specific, um, with the Suez crisis and Mm. the clarity of this is end of empire. And Mm. the U.S. realized that if it's end of empire, there are going to be like 50 countries popping up, and we don't know anything about them. And so it was uh, the U.S. Um, foreign policy needed to adjust to this sudden uh, expansion Mm -hmm. of new countries in the UN, and they needed to formulate what would their policy be with each country. So They basically had this one big meeting where all the big foundations, Ford Foundation, Carnegie, Rockefeller, all these foundations sat around the table. And they came up with the idea to create a discipline in all uh, American universities called area studies. The way area studies was divided is based on American foreign policy rather than based on the previous colonial divisions. Mm. Uh, So, MENA, which is Middle East, Mm -hmm. um, combines, for example, Egypt, Turkey, and Iran. And these are three completely different cultures, completely different histories, but they're only put in one because that was the strategic interest of American foreign policy.
1: Mm, okay. Um, and did this have something also to do with the, um, the Cold War as well?
0: Well, I guess the strategic interests of uh, the, the US at that point in the 50s mm. was very connected to the Cold War. But mm-hmm. for example, what we call North Africa or the Maghreb, which yes. somehow excludes Libya, you wonder mm. why, um, mm-hmm. but it's based on U.S. relations with the French,
1: right? Because those are all the, the French-speaking um, yes. African countries, yeah.
0: Yes, and anything below the Sahara was based on keep communism out, right? So, countries mm-hmm. where there wasn't a specific interest was mainly the Cold War reasoning was what was most important middle east mm-hmm. was mainly based on strategic interest be they geographical or right. be they uh, oil for example but what i would like to underline here mm-hmm. is that up until the late 60s This division was really not clear because Algeria, for example, was the hub, as as Amilcar Cabral said, was Mm -hmm. the mecca of revolutionaries. So Egypt would provide the arms Mm. and Algeria would provide the training for all liberation movements south of the continent. And that Mm -hmm. went on to the late 60s, even to the early 70s.
1: Mm. Okay. Wow. So there's there's a rich history um, in that, and then but we also still like in the documentary space still perpetuate some of these 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 false categories.
0: I think it, the, all these categories today are based on financing structures, um, mm-hmm. and based on border. Limitations. So, for example, any application you write, you have to say which countries they are. Well, but these countries um, are the colonial borders. Right. Why do I have to divide between Mauritania and Senegal? It's Mm -hmm. just because the colonial border is there. Right. So, anyway, our decision. At DocsBox was that we do not deal with colonial borders. We mm. deal with spaces of cultural harmony.
1: Okay. So do people, when people are applying um, to participate in Docsbox, like in, in, in your various programs, what questions around identity do you ask in order to well, even if it's just for the purposes of collecting demographics?
0: Well, I mean, we too are bound by, by financing. Mm -hmm. and so uh some countries some programs like women in docs for example um are country specific every cycle Mm -hmm. um but then we play around with that if we want the thing is that our choices are based on content what do Mm. you want to say and all the rest is somehow manageable. I mean, I think that there's a long way to go before we completely break these formats. Right. At least there are things that we can do Mm -hmm. where we do not need to abide by them. So we do not ask specific identity questions Mm -hmm. unless The the program itself is country uh, specific. Specific.
1: Got it. Okay. Got it. All right. All right. And um, great. So thank you for that. Thank you for that very detailed explanation. Because like we need to, um, sometimes we accept these arbitrary categories and um, borders um, just because is tradition, but we really don't understand like why we are doing these things. So it, it helps. It helps to have um, some clarity on that. So another thing I wanted to ask you about is just the various, and again, this is primarily for our U.S. Um, audience, but the the various um, organizations that are out there, and I know there are a lot um, that that focus on the needs of, of African filmmakers. Um, and I specifically wanted to ask about the Federation of Pan African Cinema and a few other organizations which you're you, you you're on the board or board of. Yeah, you know.
0: yeah. Well, I mean, I started really engaging with these institutions, I'd say around the mid '90s, because there was a very clear lack amongst African filmmakers how and where do we get our voice heard? Mm
3: -hmm. And
0: the main issue was like, we don't want to just be part of the ghetto. How do we Mm. as a collective get our voices heard and integrate that, you know, the the world system? Why do we have to be out of the global system?
2: We have something
0: to say, but um, most of the uh, festivals, most it's either it's an African festival. It's like the label African this and that meant that you really can only stick within that sphere. And, mm-hmm. and so um, I think it was 1997 where we first um, started the Guild of African Filmmakers in the Diaspora. Mm-hmm. We um, met in uh, FESPACO, which is one of the oldest film festivals. Yeah, it's uh,
1: running, yeah. Yes.
0: It's huge. Um, yeah, running, it's huge, which mm-hmm. I'm going to actually in a couple of days. Uh, <laughs> I'm president <laughs> of the jury this year. I'm so oh, proud. Oh, my goodness, go ahead. <laughs> After not missing a single edition since 95. I'm the president this yeah, year. you <laughs> earned
1: that. Perfect attendance.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I guess that only vouches for my old age, but anyway. Uh, um, yeah, and so we gathered and, and basically we started looking at how do we come together and make our voices heard. So we created the Guild. It had Mm -hmm. its ups and downs, but what it did actually do in the first few years that it kind of revived what the FIPASI, um, Mm -hmm. which is the Federation of Pan-African Cinema, had stopped doing for a while. Right. Um, uh, And I'll get to the Federation of Pan-African Cinema in a a minute. Um, So basically, we basically thumped our hands on the table and said, we have a space, we have a voice, and we need to be part of this conversation. So little by little, um, some of us were taken into selection committees. Some of mm-hmm. us were, uh, and and I think after a few years, that didn't even become the issue. The fact that we became visible mm-hmm. as African filmmakers, people started looking into each individual work because we didn't particularly want to just be seen as the face of Africa, but Mm -hmm. how do you get that voice heard? So I think that was a very successful. Um, way of doing it for years we'd have our pavilion uh, the south pavilion in uh, in can and then out of that came the africa pavilion which is now being run uh separately and then now mm-hmm. the federation of pan african cinema was created in the 60s basically it is the space from which the sparkle and the um the, the uh, Journée Cinématographique de Carthage The Carthage Film Festival mm-hmm. Came out of It was the meeting of the generation before us mm, Or the one okay. before that Sitting around and saying the same thing We have to be able to show our work And tell our stories on our own terms yes. And we won't be able to do this Unless we have our own spaces And mm-hmm. so um, that's how Um, why it's really important, the Federation, it's had again, it's ups and downs. Why it's really important that it remains, it has an observer seat at the African Union. Right. So it's the only organization that can actually go to the the decision makers of the cultural sphere on the continent Mm -hmm. and tell them that is what we need. This is what we want to do and to Mm. do it internally rather than go north first and then translate it to the south. Right. Um, Yeah. So uh, uh, the institutions are really important, but I think no matter what we do and maybe I'll be politically not very correct, but you know. That's okay, <laughs> You're, you could do that. I'll, you know, uh, I don't think anyone who knows me will be surprised. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I think the fact that our own countries mm. do not provide us with the support or the money to do mm. what needs to be done in the cultural sector will never get these institutions fully off the ground. So lots Mm. of people try their best, lots of people continue to work within these structures, but ultimately without the funding Mm -hmm. properly, we'll always end up, you know, just needing to do what the funding needs us to do at some point or the other.
1: And, and essentially, letting um, in some ways, letting the funding um, dictate the, what the content will be.
0: Maybe not. Maybe "dictate" is a bit too harsh. Okay. But but to to lead it in a way or the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, so another thing I want you to talk about, um, where you mentioned um, before. Um, some of the gaps that were 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 present, and particularly with your work with Doc, DocsBox and how that fills the gap. So, what are some of the unique needs of filmmakers like on, on the continent um, that that dot Box fulfills?
0: Well, I mean, I'll tell you a very simple one. We started mm. this program called Trailer and Assembly to mm. be able to even apply to any forum, to any application, to right. any funding, what do they do? They ask you for a trailer. If you're a young African or Arab filmmaker who's just spent a year on their own time, their own money, their own everything to do a film they desperately want to make and are convinced have spent every moment of their lives, every penny in their Mm -hmm. pocket to do it. Well, to do the trailer, you need an edit suite. You need an editor. You need the technical infrastructure that allows you to even cut it Mm -hmm. and present it in a form that will allow you to fill the application so basically one of the things we offer is uh, trailers you know Mm -hmm. you need to cut a trailer to submit to something here you go two weeks of edit suite and an editor who will help you out a second The assembly, for example, the assembly is because, again, of funding, you never really have the time to sit with your material and decide what is it I actually want to say, rather than just fit the structure and the criteria that will make the film the kind of film that will be sold.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So
0: we give four to five weeks, sit there, assemble your material. There's no pressure do whatever you want, think, what is it you want to say? Do right. you have the material to say it? Or do you need to stop, go shoot again and come back?
2: Mm, mm-hmm, and
0: these mm-hmm. are spaces that do not exist. Right,
1: right. So it provides uh, people the opportunity to really, because uh, people, a lot of people don't realize how, particularly when you're a newer filmmaker, oh, so much of it is a solo endeavor. You're doing a lot of it of it on your own. So you're basically providing the opportunity for filmmakers to get the support they need to get their work out into the world and like at at the various stages.
0: I'll give you a very good example. For example, with Doc's Garage, Mm -hmm. one guy had spent four years making a film Mm. and the film is cut and everything. And suddenly the main character in the film doesn't want to sign the release form. Oh no. Now, he had no idea what to do about it. The film had been blocked for two years. And then he saw the Doc's Garage thing and he sent us like, I don't know if that's what the kind of thing you do.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what he needed was a lawyer. He didn't need mm-hmm. a filmmaker. He didn't need a mentor. He needed a lawyer from the same space that his main character came from. She was Nubian. Mm-hmm. So we basically found a Nubian lawyer. Mm -hmm. who sat with the lady, and basically she was too scared of her father. And so the lawyer went to meet her father, Mm -hmm. and two days the document was signed. It's not a train smash. It's not, I mean, getting things done are not just about the money. They're also Mm -hmm. about what do you need? What do you need help with? We as filmmakers don't need to know everything. Right. Right. We don't need to be the best writers in the world. We're mm-hmm. filmmakers. Just if so you need to know has who to have. Mm-hmm. And doesn't know how to write a treatment. Maybe they need help for someone to write the treatment with them.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because I um I definitely have in- encountered that um in my, my previous work where people were clearly, clearly passionate about their project but they just really did not understand how to like articulate that, like, and to write it down and even to pitch it. So all they really need is some, some, some teaching on that. Like, this is how you put this, uh, and this is how you formalize this process. Yes. But
0: even if they don't do it themselves, right. Mm -hmm. They are filmmakers. They're not out there to become writers. And, And I think that's, One of the things which is the main, um, the backbone, I would say, with what we're trying to do. I mean, Mm. maybe we won't be able to do it perfectly, but at least we're trying. The backbone is this profession of ours is not about ticking boxes. It's not about fitting into a format that has been set out there. This Mm -hmm. is a profession that is called documentary. It's trying to capture something. It's trying to say something. It's trying to reflect over something. And it's trying to transmit a voice. And Mm -hmm. ours is a voice of diversity. So if you keep just ticking the boxes and fitting into the formats, our voice isn't there
1: you're going to miss a lot.
0: And we'd yeah. just be trying to catch up.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And it's more, it's definitely more than a box. And um, I think that is, okay, my conversations with um, filmmakers from the global south and when they talk about their interactions with the filmmaking communities in the global north, a lot of times they feel like they're just a box that's being took. Absolutely.
0: And and mind you, this whole moving on to digital Mm -hmm. is the biggest space of exclusion, although it is presented as one of inclusion.
1: Okay, so speak more to that.
0: (laughs) Yes. I mean, um, Mm -hmm. as we talk now on Zoom, Mm -hmm. a young African person who is working, obviously, most of the time off their cell phone rather than off their computer because they don't have a computer. Right. They spend, let's say, $20 on their airtime and credit for the month. If you Mm. get on a Zoom, that money is gone within three minutes. That eats it all up. Within in their country they'll never have a stable connection and so mm-hmm. they're invited and they're, they're bumped off or they're muted or they're this or they're that it's a space that gives us the impression that we could all be part of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now but but the worst of- part the mm-hmm. worst part is language. Right. Most of everything is now happening in English. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who used to go to film festivals. And when you're face-to-face with someone, you get yourself known, you get the feeling for the person, you learn by osmosis, you do hand signs. Right. But in, on a Zoom, if you do not perfect the language, you're out.
1: Right, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. And you actually, particularly those of us who are producing these events on the tech side, we have to be, definitely be more mindful and more conscientious of that Um, because I actually participated in the panel for the um, Caribbean um, Film Academy and it was all on Zoom, but um, we had, I think they had people translating in, I want to say like five different languages. So in French, Haitian, Creole, English, Spanish and like a few more. And so people, when they turned into Zoom, could actually switch to those various channels. Um, so it, that provided more accessibility um, in that regard. But another thing I wanted to bring up too is like um, for getting real uh, 20, um, Riddell and I helped to organize this convening of global indigenous filmmakers and we had moderators that we were working with um, but also we we set out a lot of questionnaires like throughout the global indigenous community just to see what some of the concerns were going to be and one of the things they mentioned was uh, definitely the connectivity issue so, um, being able to, um, if they did not have, you know, we, we, sometimes we think everybody has wifi in their home, you know, we, we get on you know, this delusion. A lot, most people don't like that is not the norm. So like just making sure people knew about the event ahead of time. So if they wanted to, and they needed to, um, if they wanted to participate to travel to where they could have like wifi, that, that was free. You know, and we were planning this in the midst of, you know, the this during the midst of the pandemic, you know, and we're having to make everything virtual. So there was definitely a lot of growing pains. Yeah. But like, I, that's one thing that we had not thought of. We would not have known to think about if not for a week now, if we've asked these questions, like what are some of the things we're not thinking about, you know?
0: But, but honestly, I do think that the virtual space does have its reasoning.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: But the extent of it and how you choose what is a much deeper conversation Mm -hmm. and all the fights and achievements that have happened over the 20 years, let's say 30 past years, um, a group of us have Mm -hmm. been convening and talking about this because um, I don't know if you've heard of the Black Audio Collective, for example. Um, no. like John O'Konfra, um, you know, uh, Kojo Ishun, David Lawson. Uh, th- these were battles of the mid-80s where mm. we needed space to exist and the rest of us. And all of us were sitting there talking after like a few months of virtuality and everybody was saying, can you believe how much we've lost? in terms of the terrain we had gained. Wow. Wow. So anyway, mm-hmm. we could go on about this forever, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, uh, let's not do that. Uh, yes. I think that the balance is there to be found. I think there's yeah. no logic of traveling halfway across the continent or to go to do a keynote speech for one hour. Right. But festivals becoming completely online, I think, is an aberration.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I, would like to see some kind of um, ideally like festivals adopt like uh, some kind of hybrid model that they can continue with. Yeah, that Absolutely. would be an ideal.
0: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Okay, so um, let's get into archives since that's what we're supposed to be talking about.
0: Absolutely, my passion. <laughs>
1: Yes, yes. So I just want to talk about um, just my experience in the, in the documentary world and as an archivist because I got into documentary um, first as a PA and then that warped into um, an archival research position. And I am a lover of history. Like, I love studying. And so it was kind of like a natural fit for me. And the first film I worked on was this project called um, Bridging the Divide Tom Bradley and the Politics of Race, which was about um, Tom Bradley, who is the first African American mayor of Los Angeles. And he was mayor for 20 years. And because he has such a long history, not only as mayor, but also as with the civic work um, in LA, I had the opportunity to like dive into so many historical um, aspects of his, of his story. Um, so, um, you know, I was, I think I probably visited every single archive in, the, in, in, um, in Los Angeles. So I visited university archives and I visited smaller ones and I visited museums and then I did like a lot of online searches, but it was really kind of my crash course in archival, um, archival research. And um, and archives, particularly in the U.S., are complicated. <laughs> um, sometimes uh, a, a film that's heavily archival-based can be extremely expensive, and sometimes the archival, the purchase of the archive, can be the majority of the budget, which for a lot of filmmakers can be prohibitive. Um, sometimes things aren't digitized, particularly um, those items that are like historical events having to do with um, black and indigenous people of color, they haven't been digitized. So um, sometimes archival houses will put those expenses onto the filmmaker, even though they're making money from it. Um, But there are are a lot of archives that are available in the the public domain. Um, So for example, I did this epic train trip across the country, and I spent some time in DC and actually went to the Library of Congress. And the Library of Congress in the US is a, the People's Archive. And they have um, a lot of things available online that are public domain. You just have to, um, sometimes you may have to pay like a reproduction cost, but you don't have to pay any licensing fees. You just have to give the, the proper attribution. And it was really um, moving for me to kind of be in that space because they are doing more to ensure that the, people's, his, the, the people as, as a whole, you know, including folks oh, of color man. is being included in that. And, um, and for example, they had an exhibit there of the civil rights activist Rosa Parks and they had things like her tax returns. So they had her tax returns before the Montgomery bus boycott where she and her husband, I think they maybe made like four thousand dollars that year. And then a few years later when they made like six hundred, because you know they have been essentially cut out from um, they have been cut out from sources of money and income because of the prejudice and discrimination against them. So for me, like archives can just add such a rich history. And, you know, these are like primary first person documents that we, we all should have access to that help tell the story that really help to tell the story of us. It really helps to these documents really help to help us understand like who we were, but also like who we want to be. Um, and that's the reason, one of the reasons why I really enjoy working with archives just because you have these, these, these are, to me, they're like, they're, they're like living histories in a way. Yeah, but
0: I mean, the, you know, you've basically said everything no, okay. that needs to be said because, I mean, you've just like really nailed it. But we're coming from a different mm-hmm. vantage point here. Yes, um, yes. Let me start by saying how I started, which was mm-hmm. like completely crazy. I actually collected my first reel of archive when i was 15 okay i I, i'm a complete flea market buff and um i used to go to the flea markets and in egypt they would the canisters was what they sold and so my goodness and so they would empty the canister throw away the reels and sell the canister and basically i i'd take the reels And Mm -hmm. I started making this giant reel, just connecting all the stuff I gathered together. Oh, okay. And and I was only 15 really. So I didn't really know what all this was about, but I I was always wondering why why is that box in which they're saving something so much more expensive? Why are people throwing away Mm -hmm. the thing that is supposed to be protected yes (laughs) yes so it was like I guess that was the first question which obviously I mean I wasn't even anywhere near so I've always had this connection the minute I go to a flea market and I see film I just buy Mm -hmm. it I bought film in India bought film in uh I bought film everywhere that's Uh, awesome and I just keep it I mean I don't know one day maybe my kids will know what to do with it but I, you know, um, but, and I remember when the first film I did that was archive-based was towards the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, people thought I was crazy. Like, why? Really? Did, oh, shoot. Huh? I'm talking in Europe. It's like, it wasn't in vogue to do archive films. I mean, archive has become sexy, Oh, I,
1: okay. I, I always thought it was sexy, but I didn't realize it was not sexy at
0: no, some point. I didn't even need release forms for half of the stuff. I mean, this oh, and it wow. was actually it wasn't cold archive, it was called found found footage. Okay.
2: Huh? Mm-hmm. And
0: mm-hmm. like you know, the producer would say, Are you sure you want to do this? Don't you want to just go shoot this, this, and that? And I was like, No, but this is really interesting because anyway, mm. so Um, And in my own lifetime, I've gone through major shifts in archive policies. So, I mean, something like Reuters Mm -hmm. and Fizz News sell their entire archive. Then suddenly all these new. So you've had the building of these major conglomerates that have become controllers of our visuals yes okay yes mm-hmm. now you spoke i'm, I'm not going to repeat everything you said because you were completely on point access is obviously a problem and mm-hmm. i can speak about this from here until tomorrow morning but i think we need to take it beyond the issue of access okay it's the act the, the issue of What do these archives actually hold? If you think of it, Mm -hmm. stuff that's filmed in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the huge cameras, the cost of film reels. Yes. Who sent these people out to film what? Mm
2: -hmm. And Mm -hmm.
0: that, for me, is the most interesting aspect. The discrepancy between official history that was decided to be captured Yes, as opposed to memory, which we find in home videos Mm -hmm. every now and then, a cameraman's own footage, somebody's. And and there is such, and that's why our program is called Bridging the Gap Between the Silenced and Liminal Spaces.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Why? Mm -hmm. Because there's a whole section of history that as you said, Rosa Parks, for example, Mm -hmm. some things were deemed unimportant. Who decides what is important and what is not important? Mm -hmm. How can we coming out of colonial structures, Mm -hmm. how can we see ourselves in these images when you know that the entire West Africa, for example, Mm -hmm. all French colonies, Until 1963, had something called the Laval Decree. Mm, mm -hmm. The Laval Decree clearly and legally forbid any indigenous individuals to deal with their own image, to Mm. use any, to capture their image, to to do anything with the image. So basically, what we are being handed down as our only imagery of ourselves was filmed through colonial eyes.
1: Exactly, yeah. So
0: we have such a huge task now. It is our history. We have nothing else to work for, Mm -hmm. uh, work with rather. So basically it's not about excluding this and saying, oh, this is the colonial uh, vantage point. We Mm -hmm. have a lot of work to use that footage and reinterpret it, interrogate Mm. it, critique it, and then be able to take ownership of it and to be able to tell our own stories through these images because we don't have any others.
1: Right, right.
0: Now, even these images, Mm -hmm. for me to tell a story about me and my country and my family, I have to go to a British library and pay 4,000 euros a minute Minute, yeah, yeah, so that's where Mm -hmm. the question of restitution and what restitution means Mm -hmm. should be at the forefront of what we're talking about. Now, when I say restitution, Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily mean give us back our footage, why? Because from the moment the colonial um uh, rulers left, nothing was done. To even right. bring our societies or our infrastructures up to date, it was by destroyed your out. cultures. We destroyed your systems.
2: Mm-hmm. By
0: mm-hmm. now, show us how you're going to live up to it. I'm sorry, it's exactly right. like slavery, where the conversation is about restituting memory. It's also about mm-hmm. about reparations.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. So, mm-hmm.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. You've been using and selling our footage for more than sixty years and earning four thousand euros a minute for yes. it. At least mm-hmm. you can do is train some of our people, maybe set up uh, there and give us copies of what is ours. Amen. Not mm-hmm. Give us the stuff and go away. Exactly. So, now the conversation that's stopped the same. Of course we can share. It's not about sharing. Mm-hmm. Give it to us to examine it, to examine it. Give us the space to think of it. Give us the space to find our own narrative
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and then we can share.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Oh my God. So you made so many like <laughs> amazing, amazing points. Um, so I want to kind of go back to the, um, to the, the restitution piece, and particularly uh, like looking looking at it um, from,
0: to, yeah. Before you say that, I, I just need to add yes. that mm-hmm. when I talk restitution, right reparations, all these things, this is not against the North, but for us to be able to talk right. to each other mm-hmm. on eye level We have to be given the time and the space and the ability. Right. And for both of us to see each other on eye Mm -hmm. level, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we can no longer continue to be looked at as, okay, some more assistance and then maybe they'll go away. No yes to yeah, able this to live together we have to con- converse mm-hmm. on the same level if we are not given the time the space and the means to do that mm-hmm. this will never happen
1: right so there have been a lot of stories well I, i'm going to say pre-covid there were a lot of stories in the news about um particularly like these um european museums um, returning artifacts to, uh, you know, to the global
0: south. They haven't um, returned them yet.
1: Oh, they. Oh, so they just said <laughs> the
0: conversation were. about needing to return them. Oh, okay. A couple of countries returned. <laughs> yeah, it's been a conversation okay. which came out of a report called the Sar Savoir report, which mm-hmm. was following Sar. Uh, who's actually teaching um, in the US uh, uh, at the moment at Duke, and Benedict Savoy, who is a French researcher, and uh, uh, the French president Emmanuel Macron um, mm-hmm. uh, said, Okay, well, do a report, <laughs> uh, thinking uh, that this will be a conversation. So much work had been done about that, that right. the report was this thick. And mm-hmm. it is extremely specific. This is, and it's the return of the icons. This object was taken from this place by that person at this place and was taken to this museum, sold to this person,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it doesn't belong to them. Right. Basically, stolen objects, but just to return this is a very huge conversation and is really wide. And luckily a lot of people are engaging with it. But to Mm. get us back to the archive, within that report, there is a section that says, and that is what we at DocsBox sort of took as a springboard to what we did um, the manifesto that we wrote called "Liberate the Image Manifesto." Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Within the Source uh, Sarah report, there's a paragraph that said, "The moving image is part of that heritage that needs to be restituted." Right. But the issue of the moving image is so huge, so vast, so scattered that so much work needs to be done about it. So Mm -hmm. accordingly, we will not make it part of this report, but by doing so, because Mm -hmm. there was so much to do about the museums and the icons, it did not exclude the moving image from that conversation, but it just put it aside. And obviously by putting it aside, people are dismissing it as though, oh no, it's not. Yes, it is. The yes. image is part of our heritage. It's part mm-hmm. of the icons that we need to engage with and we need to re-inhabit, appropriate, yes. mm-hmm. read dialogue, choose whichever, translate even. Right, you know? exactly, so exactly. Her, and that is what our program is actually about.
3: Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm.
0: People's Stories, which starts um, in, ja- in January next year mm-hmm. in Senegal. We have 14 um, renowned African Arab artists who will mm-hmm. sit with the archive and translate, interpret, critique, do installations, make films, do whatever oh, they wow. do. Oh, wow. would be wonderful. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but somehow reappropriate, somehow start a conversation with it. And right. we're doing this with, Um. I mean, luckily, the German uh, Kulturstiftung des Bundes engaged with us very in a major way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But obviously, we're just a drop in the bucket. Right. And to go back to what you were saying about luckily there's nara what we have to recognize mm-hmm. is that each one of our countries our archives are dying the yes is the issue of
1: preservation yeah
0: the state mm-hmm. they are in and if i have one call actually i have no problem being a beggar on this front mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh-uh. mm-hmm. we Like we're doing this entire program in Senegal and there isn't even a scanner to digitize these
2: programs.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to get a scanner costs like 100,000 euros. That can't Mm -hmm. be part of our program. The the people who have the archives don't mean to do it. So what do we do? What do we do? Do we just leave our archives to be, to die?
1: No yeah and that's that seems to be like one of the uh, one of the hard choices is like you know do you have the means to preserve um, but then also getting the, the means to preserve because there's also this question of like who i mean what we were talking about who owns those archives and you don't want to you don't you don't want to send these documents you know, to be digitized But you know the whole
0: issue you see that's mm-hmm. another fallacy okay the mm-hmm. whole issue of owning the archive. Mm -hmm. The whole copyright issue of the archive comes out of the Berne Convention, which was Mm -hmm. changed in 1978. Mm -hmm. And so all the money we're paying, the copyright we're paying, even public domain footage we get to pay when Mm -hmm. AP sells you public domain, sorry, not just AP, when any of the majors Mm -hmm. sell you public domain footage. Mm-hmm. They still get you to pay like a thousand because they've preserved it and they've worked on it. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. public domain. Why did this happen? Because there was a decision to change the copyright based on the archive in the Berne Convention. My mm-hmm. question is. Why do we not go back to the Berne Convention and say all these countries that did not have a say that do not have an, uh, uh, do not have access to their own country's archives right They mm-hmm. need access to it and copyright of the majors to make money out of it should be dropped when a citizen or somebody of that country of that space needs to engage needs it. With their yeah, own exactly.
1: Right, right, and that's exactly. what
0: liberate the image is right. about. Mm-hmm. We're not mm-hmm. saying don't do it as a commercial endeavor, but do not do it as a commercial endeavor on our backs yet again.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, I, I probably should use a better word than own. Um, what I, I probably meant to say, like who, oh, who? well I want to use another word. <laughs> um, controls, and when I say controls, I means who is the one who is res- responsible. The responsibility for disseminating that the that information, you know, when it's requested.
0: Um, but, but what mm-hmm. stops? I'll give you a very small example. Okay, okay. I did mm-hmm. this film called Cuba's African Odyssey. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and um, the first section was in the Congo, and I need I needed footage of Lumumba. Okay, right. mm-hmm. when he mm-hmm. was taken to his death, and I found it. I paid God knows how much for it. Mm-hmm. And the next thing I find it in Belgium. And then I find it in yeah, America. Yeah, look at it for I a couple different places. England, yeah, And then mm-hmm. I find it here. And then suddenly all these, what I would call colonial archives, all of them have copies of it. Yet there wasn't one copy of it in the Congo. So, mm. what, so every single bit of our footage should be shared with us.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You know, right. now who
0: owns mm-hmm. it is whoever wants to tell that story that mm-hmm. has a right to be trying to engage with that story. Actually, I don't need that. has the right isn't even the right word. Mm-hmm. These stories need to be engaged with.
1: Yes, yes. Okay,
0: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so if we're talking about decolonization, and mm-hmm. it's a fancy word out there nowadays.
1: Yeah decolonizing
0: docs that's decolonize well that's yeah. where it starts right. let mm-hmm. us use our footage let us think together let's do this and stop making us pay to even see what it is we need to decolonize. So yes. I have absolutely no sympathy mm-hmm. for words like ownership, copyright, mm-hmm. all of this. We mm-hmm. need the archives. I'm not saying that archives do not. I used to pay between five, six hundred euros uh, for footage. I don't right. mind paying three, four, five hundred euros for footage a mm-hmm. month of footage. I think. Buying that minute of footage and everybody like me buying it for that amount is more than enough to preserve right. that footage and to pay the person who is doing that. Now, mm-hmm. if it is again on us to fill the pockets of the people. That is right. not what we're supposed to do. That is not what we should be accepting to do.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because, I mean, sometimes in um, U.S. documentaries, I'm going to like refer to like documentaries on the the civil rights movement here in in the U.S. You'll see documentary after documentary that has the same footage, you know, Um, and, you know, like each one of those filmmakers has paid a lot of money for for that footage, you know, Um, and. Um, but also there is a lot of, there are a lot of items that aren't digitized. And I think I mentioned this before. Yes. So you'll, you'll get a shot list, but then they make, they want to make the filmmaker pay to digitize. But I think even that's half that-
0: of my documentaries. Yeah. I mm-hmm. was like, what does this mean? What is in there? He says, no, it's not interesting for us. You want to see it, digitize it. So the amount of footage I've had to pay to digitize, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, I was I was saying now we need a scanner and we can't right. even pay for it my last film mm-hmm. I paid more than 600,000 euros it was a three part series mm-hmm. 600,000 euros to I archives it. just to make my film and an entire country cannot get 100,000 euros to get a scanner to save their archives mm-hmm. i think this is unacceptable i'm pretty uh, sure agree. all the majors are going to hate me and never want to sell anything to me and i'll be blocked out of this world and end up like rosa parks with with a tax return that uh, <laughs> has diminished <laughs> uh, considerably but i don't care i think mm-hmm. that we are at a, we are at a turning point if Now is not the time to say this is an important conversation that needs to start happening. I was in the Senegalese archive. They Mm -hmm. had 5,000 reels. We Mm. are down to 250.
1: Because it's just disintegrated, just because.
0: I mean, the the reason I'm desperately trying to find the money to get this uh, is seven hundred of them are still savable, right? Seven hundred of the five thousand. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. But we need
0: the machines.
1: We need the machines to do it. Well, yeah. who
0: now? If I ask any of the majors, if I ask any of the institutions, if I ask any of this, this, and that, it doesn't fill. I, I can, I do not tick the boxes. Mm-hmm. But then, what mm-hmm. do you do? You sit there and say, okay. Our heritage has dwindled to 200 and that's that. And in a couple of years, and you know how much of the 200 are digitized? Four. That's it. Wow. It's a huge challenge. And if right. it's the last thing I do in my breathing mm-hmm. days, this is going to change. At least for whatever. Uh, luckily in, in Morocco, they had the exact same problem. Right. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. the battle they had internally to be able to shift a lot of the money Mm -hmm. towards the archive meant that it impacted their filmmaking. Okay. Right. Exactly. You know, the Mm -hmm. the amount of money available for the sector is Mm -hmm. limited. We come from countries that do not have the means.
1: Right. So, what are some of the things um, that we can do as those of us who recognize the need for archive what are some things we can do to help um and to assist some of the countries to like get the equipment they they need to make the, this happen
0: i don't know maybe call one of the uh archive uh, machine manufacturers the scanner make a donation (laughs) please give a donation to this country (laughs) yes (laughs) or this university because i've actually sorted Mm -hmm. out a deal for someone to train the on digitizing on preservation yes um but without the machines what do we do
1: well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's another issue too. Cause like sometimes um, you, people will um, send items to universities, um,
0: but, but even a lot of universities, universities
1: don't have the, the money or the resources. You see,
0: then too. we get into another hitch. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and again, I'm going to underline that it's not about where people come from. It's mm-hmm. just about the gaze. We need to shift yes. the, gaze. the
1: gaze. Got okay? it
0: and Mm -hmm. it's not against anybody and it's not for anybody it's just what needs to happen at this stage now obviously what happens is that we'll get expert european expert american who are wonderful people who are this but again the gaze Mm -hmm. the gaze that you cannot ask them not to have that gaze, you know, <laughs> that's who, where, yeah. who they are and where they come from. So right. you hire these people huh? who mm-hmm. are doing their best, but then you're not doing that job. So we need to, to train local archive archi- yes. researchers. Mm-hmm. We need to have mentors of people who come from a space where not to teach, the word teach, we do not need to teach anybody anything. Mm-hmm, we need mm-hmm. to exchange. We need to put questions on the table. We need to have them ask the questions and we try to assist them on where to find the answers. Right. We right. need to, mm-hmm. to, to allow them to trial and error. Mm-hmm. we need mm-hmm. there's so much to be done and if you get me on and on about this we're never going to end this conversation okay i know <laughs> we, do need, we, do need to, we
1: do need to wrap up we definitely yes. need to wrap up but i just I've always like at the end of the podcast just to um ask uh our guests if they have any last bit of words of wisdom they'd like to um or or even like a call to action, which you've already outlined like several, but um, yeah, so do you have any last words?
0: Yes, I Mm -hmm. have a very clear call to action because liberate the image. Mm -hmm. We can only see each other eye to eye if our images represent us, not represent what somebody else wants to see us as being.
1: Thank you, thank you. Well, Jihan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I actually absolutely do want to continue this conversation where we can kind of get deeper into this manifesto. You'll be more like, than on, welcome
0: on board on a, our ship. We need okay. to have that conversation.
1: Yes, uh, on, <laughs> on another episode, because yes. I, I, <laughs> you, I could talk about archive like all day. Um, but thank you so much for um, being a part of this, being our... Uh, being a part of our second year I do Guy have Leipzig. to
0: also oh. underline something yes. um uh Doc Leipzig is one of our partners on this archive program we extremely Day. you know what Doc Leipzig has been doing for documentary and now even more so and so we were really really thrilled that They're coming on board as partners. We don't know in what shape or form, but that is what the conversation is about. Where we we can hold hands and move along together.
1: Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Jihan. And at some point, like, what I would like to, I would love to see is, like, those of us who are archival researchers, like, meeting with archivists and those who train archivists um, and those who make the equipment for archivists, like, to just kind of get together and, like, and talk about how we can support one another in, in the work that we Listen, do.
0: Listen, you're on. I'm going to okay. call you. You're yes, on. <laughs>
1: call me. Okay. All right. Okay. Great. Thank you so much, Jihan.
2: Okay bye <laughs> thank you